Should you, I wonder? If I saw the suffering as you see it, and knew the circumstances as I know them, I believe I should feel justified, he broke off. In your work don't you ever feel tempted to set a poor devil free? She mused. One might, but perhaps the professional instinct to save would always come first. To save what, when all the good of life is gone? I dare say, she sighed. Poor Dillon would do it himself if he could, when he realized that all the good is gone. Yes, but he can't do it himself, and it's the irony of such cases that his employers, after ruining his life, will do all they can to patch up the ruins. But that at least ought to count in their favor. Perhaps, if— He paused, as though reluctant to lay himself open once more to the charge of uncharitableness, and suddenly she exclaimed, looking about her, I didn't notice we had walked so far down Maplewood Avenue. They had turned a few minutes previously into the wide thoroughfare crowning the high ground, which is covered by the residential quarter of Hannaford. Here the spacious houses, withdrawn behind shrubberies and lawns, revealed in their silhouettes every form of architectural experiment, from the symmetrical pre-revolutionary structure, with its classic portico and clipped box borders, to the latest outbreak in boulders and moorish tiles. Amherst followed his companion's glance with surprise. We have gone a block or two out of our way. I always forget where I am when I'm talking about anything that interests me. Miss Brent looked at her watch. My friends don't dine till seven, and I can get home in time by taking a Grove Street car, she said. If you don't mind walking a little further, you can take a Liberty Street car instead. They run oftener, and you will get home just as soon. She made a gesture of assent, and as they walked on, he continued. I haven't yet explained why I am so anxious to get an unbiased opinion of Dillon's case. She looked at him in surprise. What you've told me about Dr. Disbro and your manager is surely enough. Well, hardly, considering that I am Truscombe's subordinate. I shouldn't have committed a breach of professional etiquette or asked you to do so if I hadn't a hope of bettering things. But I have, and that is why I've held on at Westmore for the last few months instead of getting out of it altogether. I'm glad of that, she said quickly. The owner of the mills, young Richard Westmore, died last winter, he went on, and my hope, it's no more, is that the new broom may sweep a little cleaner. Who is the new broom? Westmore left everything to his widow, and she is coming here to-morrow to look into the management of the mills. Coming? She doesn't live here, then? At Hannaford? Heaven forbid! It's an anomaly nowadays for the employer to live near the employed. The Westmores have always lived in New York, and I believe they have a big place on Long Island. Well, at any rate she is coming, and that ought to be a good sign. Did she never show any interest in the mills during her husband's life? Not as far as I know. I've been at Westmore three years, and she's not been seen there in my time. She is very young, and Westmore himself didn't care. It was a case of inherited money. He drew the dividends, and Truscombe did the rest. Miss Brent reflected. I don't know much about the constitution of companies, but I suppose Mrs. Westmore doesn't unite all the offices in her own person. Is there no one to stand between Truscombe and the operatives? Oh, the company on paper shows the usual official hierarchy. 
Richard Westmore, of course, was president, and since his death, the former treasurer, Halford Gaines, has replaced him, and his son, Westmore Gaines, has been appointed treasurer. You can see by the names that it's all in the family. Halford Gaines married a Miss Westmore and represents the clan at Hannaford, leads society and keeps up the social credit of the name. As treasurer, Mr. Halford Gaines kept strictly to his special business and always refused to interfere between Truscombe and the operatives. As president, he will probably follow the same policy, the more so as it fits in with his inherited respect for the status quo and his blissful ignorance of economics. And the new treasurer, young Gaines? Is there no hope of his breaking away from the family tradition? Westy Gaines has a better head than his father, but he hates Hannaford and the mills, and his chief object in life is to be taken for a New Yorker. So far he hasn't been here much, except for the quarterly meetings, and his routine work is done by another cousin. You perceive that Westmore is a nest of nepotism. Miss Brent's work among the poor had developed her interest in social problems, and she followed these details attentively. Well, the outlook is not encouraging, but perhaps Mrs. Westmore's coming will make a change. I suppose she has more power than anyone. She might have, if she chose to exert it, for her husband was really the whole company. The official cousins hold only a few shares apiece. Perhaps then her visit will open her eyes. Who knows, but poor Dillon's case may help others. Prove a beautiful dispensation, as Mrs. Ogan would say. It does come terribly pat as an illustration of some of the abuses I want to have remedied. The difficulty will be to get the lady's ear. That's her house we're coming to, by the way. An electric street lamp irradiated the leafless trees and stone gate-posts of the building before them. Though gardens extended behind it, the house stood so near the pavement that only two short flights of steps intervened between the gate-posts and the portico. Light shone from every window of the pompous, rusticated façade, in the turreted Tuscan villa style of the fifties, and as Miss Brent and Amherst approached, their advance was checked by a group of persons who were just descending from two carriages at the door. The lamplight showed every detail of dress and countenance in the party, which consisted of two men, one slightly lame, with a long white moustache and a distinguished nose, the other short, lean, and professional, and two ladies and their laden attendants. "'Why, that must be her party arriving!' Miss Brent exclaimed, and as she spoke the younger of the two ladies, turning back to her maid, exposed to the glare of the electric light a fair, pale face shadowed by the projection of her widow's veil. "'Is that Mrs. Westmore?' Miss Brent whispered, and as Amherst muttered, "'I suppose so. I've never seen her.' She continued excitedly, "'She looks so like—do you know what her name was before she married?' He drew his brows together in a hopeless effort of remembrance. "'I don't know. I must have heard, but I can never recall people's names.' "'That's bad for a leader of men,' she said mockingly, and he answered as though touched on a sore point. "'I mean people who don't count. I never forget an operative's name or face.' "'One can never tell who may be going to count,' she rejoined sententiously. 
He dwelt on this in silence while they walked on, catching as they passed a glimpse of the red-carpeted Westmore Hall on which the glass doors were just being closed. At length he roused himself to ask, "'Does Mrs. Westmore look like someone you know?' "'I fancied so. A girl who was at the Sacred Heart in Paris with me. But isn't this my corner?' she exclaimed as they turned into another street, down which a laden car was descending." Its approach left them time for no more than a hurried hand-clasp, and, when Miss Brent had been absorbed into the packed interior, her companion, as his habit was, stood for a while where she had left him, gazing at some indefinite point in space. Then, waking to a sudden consciousness of his surroundings, he walked off toward the center of the town. At the junction of two business streets he met an empty car marked Westmore, and, springing into it, seated himself in a corner and drew out a pocket Shakespeare. He read on, indifferent to his surroundings, till the car left the asphalt streets and illuminated shop-fronts for a gray intermediate region of mud and macadam. Then he pocketed his volume and sat looking out into the gloom. The houses grew less frequent, with darker gaps of night between, and the rare street-lamps shone on cracked pavements, crooked telegraph-poles, hoardings tapestried with patent medicine posters, and all the mean desolation of an American industrial suburb. Farther on there came a weed-grown field or two, then a row of operatives' houses, the showy gables of the Eldorado Road-house, the only building in Westmore on which fresh paint was freely lavished, then the company store, the machine shops and other outbuildings, the vast forbidding bulk of the factories looming above the river bend, and the sudden neatness of the manager's turf and privet hedges. The scene was so familiar to Amherst that he had lost the habit of comparison, and his absorption in the moral and material needs of the workers sometimes made him forget the outward setting of their lives. But to-night he recalled the nurse's comment, "'It looks so dead,' and the phrase roused him to a fresh perception of the scene. With sudden disgust he saw the sordidness of it all, the poor, monotonous houses, the trampled grass-banks, the lean dogs prowling in refuse-heaps, the reflection of a crooked gas-lamp in a stagnant loop of the river, and he asked himself how it was possible to put any sense of moral beauty into lives